us that having prepared our hearts and our minds to receive the word of truth, that we would receive it tonight with joy and with gladness and with thanksgiving of heart. Hallelujah, Jesus. That we would be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. But that we would receive the word of truth. That we would take ownership of it. That we would act upon it. That we would incorporate it into our walk with you tonight. Above all else, Lord, that we pray that your mighty name, your glorious name, would be glorified in our midst this evening. And all these things we ask, all these things we pray, in Jesus' name. Praise God. Amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing tonight. You can be seated. <clears throat> uh, our scripture texts tonight will be found uh, first in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 36 through 40. And then we're going to skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. And then we'll jump to 1 Corinthians 10. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 36, we read this. This is the Pharisees speaking with Jesus, questioning him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We're not going to be speaking about this topic specifically tonight, but this will apply directly to the topic we are speaking of tonight. So just keep that in the back of your mind. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31 states this, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that you do, Due to the glory of God. Amen. And tonight we're going to be talking on this topic, Christian liberty. Christian liberty. Now, it is my desire tonight to provide us a balanced biblical view of Christian liberty. Sometimes, in a message, a sermon, whatever it is, something on the radio... When we've got our mind made up on something, it's easy to pick out the parts that we agree with and just not hear the rest. And so, I'm going to ask us tonight to listen to the whole thing, because this gate can swing both ways, as it were. When we're speaking about Christian liberty, it can certainly swing toward liberalism. I got liberty. I can do whatever I want to do. And that's one camp we'll be talking about tonight. But it also swings the other way toward legalism. As Jerry Jones has said one time, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. We want to stay in the middle, we want to stay on the road. And so, uh, with the help of the Lord, we'll be able to do that tonight. Two camps when it comes to Christian liberty. The first camp is we have liberty, but be very careful. It can lead to a license to sin, which is true. It can do that. So what this camp will generally do is let's determine a regimen of rules and regulations to help us govern this Christian liberty. 
Christian liberty is a statement of our freedom in Jesus Christ. But it can seem sometimes that we come away from this more bound than we were before. This camp tends toward legalism, Phariseeism. The other camp, throw out all rules and regulations. We have liberty after all. Celebrate and embrace your liberty. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says I can't drink in moderation, so let's drink. doesn't say anything about smoking. Enjoy yourself. Amen. Do what you want and let no man judge you. Emphasize freedom to do what I want to the exclusion of doing anything God wants. If it's not expressly forbidden in the Scripture, then it's okay for me to do so. Technically, that is what the Bible says. However, however, there are a couple quid pro quos in there, which we'll talk about. This camp tends toward license at best, a sinful lifestyle at worst. Ultimately, our Christian liberty must always be tempered by two things. We do have Christian liberty, folks. We have been set free through Jesus Christ. But it must be tempered by two things. Our desire to honor and give glory to God. That's got to temper everything we do. Everything I do, do all to the glory of God. The other thing I need to consider is my desire to minister to the needs of my brothers and sisters and to edify them in all things. To esteem others better than myself. What Christian liberty is not. Christian liberty is not doing the bare minimum and still squeaking on into heaven. How close to the world can I get and still make it? That's many people's definition, maybe not uh, overtly, but by how they live, that's many people's definition of Christian liberty. How close can I get to the world and still make it in? Another thing Christian liberty is not is focusing on myself instead of God and the brethren. Many times when someone expresses their Christian liberty, it's because it's something I want to do. And you can't tell me not to. Because the Bible doesn't say I can't do that. Well, not in so many words. Again, we'll get more into that as the lesson goes on. So what is Christian liberty then? One thing Christian liberty is, is the fact that we've been freed from the penalty of sin. John 8, 31-36 says, then, Jesus to those, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered Him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have been set free from the penalty of sin. 
That is the single most important aspect of Christian liberty. That's hardly ever emphasized, though. Christian liberty is always, always seems to emphasize other things. But that is the single most important aspect of Christian liberty. I am free from the penalty of sin because Jesus Christ paid that price for me. Another thing Christian liberty entails is freedom from the power of sin in our day-to-day lives. Jesus Christ is now Lord of my character and conduct. Romans 6, 5 and 6 states this, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Bishop talked about this Sunday. We ought not be struggling with these things. We have power over sin. Amen. Thank God we have power over sin. Another thing Christian liberty entails is we've been freed from the letter of the law, which can only reveal sin in our lives but has no power to free us. It has no power to save us. Romans 3, 20-22 states this, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. We cannot be saved by the law. The law shows us that we have need of a Savior. But that's as far as it goes. After that, we need to approach the Savior with that knowledge. 2 Corinthians 3, 2-6 states this, Ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, administered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Amen. So those external rules and regulations need no longer apply to us because they're all in here now. He's written them on the table of our heart now. He's given us a new character now, a new nature now. One that is able to please Him, one that is able to serve Him. Amen. Finally, Christian liberty can mean that Christians are freed in respect to such activity that is not expressly forbidden in the Bible. Romans 14, 12-16 states this, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know, and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus, that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. 
This is the part of Christian liberty that is almost always emphasized whenever it's brought up. Do a Google search on it. Look at YouTube. See what comes up. I'll tell you what comes up. Because I did it. Can I be a Christian and smoke? Can I be a Christian and drink? Can I be a Christian and live with my partner outside of marriage? Stuff like that. That is almost exclusively what comes up. Nothing about any of the other things that Christian liberty entails. What does that tell us about people? There is no desire in here to please God. There is no desire in here to serve God. Or for that matter, to serve each other. I just want to do what I want to do and stamp a Christian label on it. Call it good. I go to church. Who's the weaker brother? You've heard of the weaker brother, right? 1 Corinthians 8, 9-13 But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Okay. There are churches in our world today who are very limited in activity and in scope because someone would be offended. The result of this can be that the church adjusts its activities to the capacity of its most dysfunctional member. (coughs) Is this what Paul had in mind when he spoke about the weaker brother? A weaker conscience? No. No, this isn't what Paul meant at all. In some cases, we must never offend. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 18, 6. Some offenses we are to never cause. But whosoever shall, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. For other offenses, though, Jesus and the apostles make no apology at all. John six fifty three through 61 we're not going to read it, But Jesus speaks here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And this offends many of the people that were walking with him. So what does Jesus do? Not only does he not recant, not only does he not, well, this isn't that important, actually. Let's just table that for now. Just come back. Not only does he do any of that, he doesn't even bother to clarify what he said. He just lets him walk away offended. Paul as well is okay in offending people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.23 says we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block. 
and unto the Greeks foolishness. Galatians 5, 11 and 12 says, I, brethren, yet, I'm sorry, and I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. There were those that were offended by the cross of Christ. So what does Paul do? Well, he keeps preaching the cross of Christ. So this isn't what he's talking about. There are people that are going to be offended by choice. That's just, I don't know who they are. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I've been set free from that, folks. We have been set free from that. I can't remember what Bishop said. Disappointment comes to all people. But discouragement, that's a choice. Yeah. So is offense, folks. Offense is a choice. It really is. You can come at me with the worst attitude, the ugliest spirit. I could be offended by that or I could I could pray for you. <clears throat> you don't need my offense. You need prayer. And that's what it means to esteem others better than himself. I want to minister to you. You want to minister to others. That's what it means to be a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 8, and actually, if you want to, if you want to do more study on uh, Christian liberty, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, and 1 Corinthians 10 speak a lot about Christian liberty, various aspects of it. We'll touch on different aspects. We're not going to go through, probably, the whole chapters. But in 1 Corinthians 8, it talks about eating meat offered to idols. Now, understand the, the, the context of this, of this book, this chapter. Paul was a Jew that was saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He was a Jew. He was raised a Jew. He was raised a Pharisee, the strictest, at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew that idols were nothing at all. He didn't have any problem with idols. But the Gentiles that were coming in from the world, they did. That was their life. That was all that they knew. You've got to understand the culture of the time, folks. The Gentiles, I'm sure, would have struggled with this. In ancient cities, places of worship, merchants surrounded the town square. Idols were on display. A butcher, a grocer, a restaurateur might offer a prayer to his gods and dedicate all of his stock to them, hoping that his sales would improve. Except for the Jews and the newly established Christian church, most ancient peoples were polytheists. They worshipped many, 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 many gods. The Romans had millions of them. Millions. Can you imagine? Trying to keep every one of them appeased. It's no wonder they were looking for something else. And the transition from that to worshiping only one God could prove to be a difficult one. Try to, try to put yourself in their shoes. Understand where they're coming from. This was a radical change of thought here. 
Millions, only one? That doesn't seem right. That seems a little scary. The newly converted Gentile believer, because of that, might be weak yet in the area of eating meat offered to idols. Weak in this case, meaning that the person has not yet developed a strong moral compass in this area. He's easily influenced. His moral muscle gives out, and he might collapse back into old habits. He doesn't know yet. New convert, folks. What don't new converts know? A lot. They don't know a whole bunch of stuff. I know I didn't. I thought I did. I didn't know anything. Now, we can also apply the opposite end of the spectrum as well. A weak brother can end up overcompensating in a moral situation. They can get overzealous about some things that at the end of the day just don't really matter. When I was, uh, I would still have considered myself a new convert. I'd been in for a couple years living for God. I read in the Scriptures that uh, the people I admired most in the Scriptures went on a 40-day fast. So I thought, I need to go on a 40-day fast. Now, I had never fasted an hour before. I don't think I'd missed one meal, not by choice, at this point. But the Lord was dealing with me about fasting. So I'm like, i got to go on a 40-day fast. I talked to my pastor about it. I don't know if I'd have handled it the way that he handled it, but at least this is my recollection of the event. He kind of laughed at me. And... Uh, <laughs> I was like, what? i got to get super spiritual here. Jesus did it. Moses did it. Uh, Elijah did it. All these, all these great men of God did it. I want to be a great man of God. And he, he tried to explain to me that, you know, let's, let's take it slow. And he even said, again, if I'm recalling correctly, he even said that, it's his job to kind of temper my zeal a little bit. And I was like, I was furious. I was like, temper my zeal? I'm trying to do something for God here. What do you mean temper my zeal? I didn't say this to him. I thought this. I probably should have said it to him. It might have ended up better. Because <clears throat> uh, what ended up happening, I made plans to go through with it. Me and another guy that uh, I'd won to the Lord. Uh, we were going to do this. We were going to go out camping, just bring our camping supplies and a water filter. And we were going to go out for 40 days and pray and read the Bible. And that was going to be, we are going to come back. Our face was going to be glowing. And, uh, and we are going to be ready to go. We are going to do this. Well, just before we were getting ready to go, I got the flu. And uh, that lasted about a week, and it got better, and then I got lockjaw. I was like, 
uh, this doesn't seem right. So I went to the doctor and ends up I had Lyme's disease. <clears throat> he took one look at me. I had red splotches all over my body. I didn't really notice it. But he's like, yeah, you got Lyme's disease, dude. We'll take a blood test and confirm, but yeah, that's Lyme's disease. So they gave me some antibiotics, and thank God. I mean, it, nothing happened from it. I've heard horror stories from that. But, uh, no, God protected me from that. In any case, the, the, the camping trip never happened, never materialized. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. We can get overzealous in some things. Now, should we fast? Of course we should fast. The Bible talks about that. It commands us, when ye fast. We, we do need to fast. But jumping in from zero to 100 miles an hour, quite frankly, that's dangerous. It's dangerous, folks. I could have seriously hurt myself doing that. Thank God I had a pastor that loved me enough to put the brakes on a little bit. Amen. So, again, that applies on both sides of the fence. The weak conscience. The problem this brother is experiencing is personal. It's not the church. It's not other Christians. It's his conscience that threatens to trip him up. Watch this, Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It's his faith doing it, not the faith. If other Christians oblige him, it's not necessarily because he's right. It might be just simply because his conscience is weak. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. So what threatens him spiritually is not necessarily real. Now looking at this from the other side of the fence, I am not permitted to impose my personal convictions onto you. They're called personal convictions because they're mine. Some personal convictions are given to us by God for our protection. We come in from the world, we struggled with certain things, and God is setting up a specific boundary around that area to protect us. Others may not, they might not need that protection at all. I knew one guy when I first came into church, he worshipped sports. That's all he talked about. It's all he knew. He'd make bets on, on anything. Bowling leagues. I mean, the guy was just a fanatic. He knew all the numbers, the stats. He knew what was going on everywhere. He came into church and he had to, he had to separate himself from that. He couldn't go to a football game. He couldn't watch it on television because he'd get sucked back into that. Now me, I don't have a problem with that at all. I can watch it and fall asleep. I watched the, the highlights on YouTube. 14, 15 minutes. Perfect. I know what happened. But for him to go around saying, you can't, you can't watch football. Well, why not? I, I don't have a problem with football. But he did. And for him to impose that protection that God placed in his life on someone else 
It's just not necessary. There are things that God has placed in my life personally that I will never share. You can ask me directly. I mean, it's not a secret. But I'm not, I'm not going to impose those things on you. That's my protection. God has put protection in your life for the things that, uh, that you need protection from. Now, some are there because of our spiritual weakness and immaturity, and they are to be outgrown. As we get mature in Christ, we're expected to grow, to become stronger. The weak conscience needs to become strong. Others, other convictions are placed in our lives only for the purpose of glorifying God in that area of your life. Amen. So don't look around and say, well, that's wrong. Why is, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? No, that's wrong for you. And that's okay. It may not necessarily be wrong for someone else. That's Christian liberty, folks. The weaker brother is expected to grow and become stronger. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Their faith grew exceedingly. Colossians 1.10 That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We need to increase in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. <laughs> we need to grow up. Amen. Can't stay a kid forever, which is unfortunate in some ways, but fortunate in many, many other ways. This is likened to a child learning to walk. When a child is just learning to walk, you don't put a bunch of obstacles in front of them. You don't set them up on the stairs. Let them walk up and down the stairs. You give them a nice easy path. All the obstacles are cleared out. And you're there, just in case he falls, ready to catch him. Then when the child gets the mechanics of walking down, and he's comfortable with that, then it's probably safer to... to let him walk around a few obstacles. Maybe try the stairs. Eventually, of course, the child will get to the place where he can do all that easy. He'll be leaping up and down the stairs. He'll be leaping over obstacles, running around things, playing with other people, not tripping up over himself or other people's feet. He's strong enough and mature enough to be able to handle those things, to be able to navigate around them. Folks, in Scripture... Everything is not specifically stated to us. It's not. I don't have a thou shalt and a thou shalt not for every single circumstance that we'll ever face in life. We don't. We have principles that will apply to every situation in life. But how do I apply that principle? When do I apply the principle? To what extent do I apply the principle? That's just kind of left up to us. I find that interesting. I find it fascinating that the Lord would do that. 
We'll talk about that in just a second. So we see this is not a blank check for church manipulation. The one who stomps his foot and threatens foul unless people see things his way because I'm offended. If you don't see it my way, I'm offended. That's not the weaker brother Paul is talking about here. That's another spiritual condition, but not the one Paul's talking about. Okay, Acts 15. That was part of the lesson on Sunday. Acts 15, the matter of the Gentiles' liberty had to be discussed. The first century church had to come together and talk this out because there wasn't a chapter and verse. There wasn't a chapter and verse at that point anyway, but uh, there wasn't scripture for any of this. This is all brand new, folks. What do we do? Acts 15.1 says, Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they disagreed. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem under the apostles and elders about this question. They were going to go up and meet and discuss, argue, Hashed it out. They had to decide how we're going to proceed from here. How are we going to apply the, the, the principles of Scripture to this situation? Acts 15, 10 and 11 says, this is Peter speaking, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Peter stood up and said, you're going to put them in more bondage than they were before. Why would you do that? We couldn't handle it either. How are they going to handle it? Verses 19 and 20, James stands up and says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. I don't see any of that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter never mentioned any of that. I don't hear it preached in any evangelistic message. Why would he say that to the first century Gentiles? Basically, the judgment of James was that the Gentiles don't exercise their Christian liberty to the extent that they become a stumbling block to the Jews who are coming into the church as well. That would have been a stumbling block to the Jews. As we see in 15 verse 1. That's why those were placed there. Right. Romans chapter 14. I want to talk, pick out some select verses from here. Romans chapter 14, the whole chapter really deals with Christian liberty. It's a fascinating, excellent chapter. But, as I alluded to earlier, uh, this didn't come to us originally in chapter and verse form. Those were added artificially at some later point. 
So when we're looking at chapter 14, I like to look at parts of 13 and 15 as well. I read in chapter 13, starting with verse 11, this, And that knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And then, after penning this, Paul begins to speak to us about this idea of Christian liberty. Not in as many words, but... 14 verse 1. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, and other who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. We cannot accept only those individuals into fellowship that agree 100% with us. And what I mean by that is this. At what point does Jesus accept us? When I become perfect, then He accepts me. Sometime before I become perfect. At what point? He accepts me as soon as I turn to Him with a repentant and contrite heart. Now, don't mistake me. We are not to stay there. We understand that. God does not want us to stay there. We need to move on from there. We need to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Word of God. We need to grow in our walk with Him to become Christ-like, to reflect His character. Amen. All of those things apply. But, those don't ingratiate me to God. God loves me without all of those things. He has accepted me without all of those things. He has accepted me into a covenant relationship with Him. He did that when I was a rank sinner. When I came to the Lord, I was not perfect. I had sin all over me, inside and out. But when I came into the presence of God, He allowed me into His presence. Just like that. And He gave me a godly sorrow unto repentance. And He transformed me. He changed me. All of those things I did, they're gone. But, the person that I was, all a lot of that baggage came with me. And in some cases, it took a long time to work some of that out. I knew people, a couple living together, both got the Holy Ghost. They were baptized in Jesus' name. They still felt very comfortable living together for months after that. Were they disfellowshipped? 
No. They were worked with. Taught them Bible studies. Were they wrong? Of course they were wrong. Absolutely they were wrong. But folks, there are... We need to give people an opportunity to grow the same opportunity that we had. The person that I am today, I was nowhere close to this. That night, when I repented of my sins, and should the Lord tarry five, ten years from now, I pray I'm an entirely different person then than I am today. Still growing. Still learning. Still maturing. I can't stay here. I've got to continue moving forward. I've got to grow. That's always God's will for each and every one of us. But that process of growing doesn't cause me to be accepted by God. That's not, what, that's not why He accepts me. It's not. He loves me. He wants me to be His child. He wants me to grow. He wants all of that junk out of my life. But it doesn't happen just like that. I wish it did. I wish it did in my life. I wish it did in everyone's life. But it doesn't. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. People grow. You don't spit out a, a bambino and then three hours later, he's got a job. Doesn't work like that. Wouldn't it be nice? Go get a job, son. You eat too much. <clears throat> Talking to you, Ryan. I made like nine, I fried up nine potatoes last week. Nine of them. Great big heaping pan. I got a little bit and he ate the rest. Did you want me to save some? <laughs> no, nah, it's alright, buddy. You go ahead. <laughs> uh, I pick on him, but when I was his age, I ate like that too. Don't anymore. <clears throat> we've got to grow, folks. And we've got to give opportunities for others to grow. We're there to help them. We're there to catch them if they fall. To encourage them. To strengthen them. Answer their questions. Clean up after them. Whatever we can do to get them moving forward. We've got to get them moving. Excuse me. We've got to get them moving forward. They can't stay where they're at. Neither can I just impose a set of rules and regulations either. That's not how the New Testament works. That's not how the New Covenant works. It's written in here. Not enforced out here. Self-government. Alright. Romans 14.4 Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. We are judged by God, by the Word of God, not by any man. I'm not going to judge you on Judgment Day. Bishop's not going to be standing before the 
the throne and, and, and judging you, good or bad? God is. We're certainly not judged by any man's standards. No man is able to impose anything on us other than what Scripture does. Only He has the authority to do that. Only God has the authority to bind the conscience. Now, if I can show you Scripture for it, that ought to bind the conscience. But if I can't, well, then it's just my word against yours, right? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Romans 14, 5 and 6 says this, One man esteemeth one day above another, and other esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. <clears throat> I know there are uh, pastors, I know there are ministers that preach vehemently against Christmas, against Easter. I think they make good points. Do I celebrate Christmas? I do. I understand what Christmas is. I understand Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I know that. I know Santa Claus isn't real. Maybe I shouldn't have said that publicly. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Did I let something out of the bag there? <laughs> if you're of that persuasion, fantastic. If you're of the persuasion that celebrates Christmas, fantastic, as long as you're persuaded of that. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Amen. Romans 14, 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Did I live up to the revelation of God's truth I received? Did I live up to God's standards? God's standard of holiness, righteousness, God's will and plan for my life? Only God's Word has the authority to tell me how I ought to live. Now, there is a difference between ought and legally obligated. Legally obligated is, I obey the speed limit because I don't want to pay the ticket. Not because I necessarily agree with it. I just don't want to pay the ticket. I look both ways at a red light, no traffic anywhere. I could go safely. There's no reason for me to be stopped here except that the light is red and it's illegal to go on a red light. I disagree with that, but I'm going to stay there until it turns green because I don't want anyone coming out and giving me a ticket. That's legally obligated. Ought is a much more powerful word.
God tells me how I ought to live, what I ought to do, and what I ought not to do. And He writes those on the table of my heart. That's what I want to do. The ought nots, I don't want to do. Anyway, that'll devolve into a philosophical thing. Moving on, Romans 14, 14 to 16. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. And again, this is where we start to get into contentious territory. So are you just saying that everything is okay? You just do whatever you want? Remember what Christian liberty is. We've been freed from the penalty of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin in our day-to-day lives. Jesus is now the Lord of our character and conduct. We've been freed from the letter of the law, which can only reveal sin in our lives, but has no power to save. Finally, Christian liberty can mean that Christians are freed in respect to such activity that is not expressly forbidden in the Bible. And I think it would be well if we saw these aspects of Christian liberty as being in that order. With liberty, with freedom, comes great responsibility. I don't get freedom, I don't get liberty, without an equal amount of responsibility. Because when I have freedom, then I have to decide things for myself. When I lived under the roof of my mom and dad, I didn't have a lot of freedom. Neither did I have a lot of responsibility. I didn't have to pay any bills. I didn't have to determine what we were going to have for supper. Sometimes I wish I could have. But I never got to. Except for maybe my birthday. I didn't get to make any of those decisions. They weren't mine to make. But other than a few chores, doing my schoolwork, I didn't have any responsibility. After I moved out, I had a whole lot more freedom, a whole lot more responsibility. Now I had a checkbook to balance. Now I had bills to pay. If I was going to eat something, I was going to buy it, cook it, all that. With freedom comes responsibility. We must learn to exercise our Christian liberty within the confines of Scripture, God's character, and with the welfare of our brothers and sisters in mind. That's how we exercise Christian liberty in a biblical sense. I'm not just free to do whatever I want to do. I am free to do whatever I want to do as long as I keep these things in mind. Within the confines of Scripture, God's character, and with the welfare of our brothers and sisters in mind. We've got to learn to walk. We've got to learn to walk around obstacles, over rough terrain, up and down stairs, etc. And we must help others to do the same. Romans 14, 22 and 23 says, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that commendeth not himself in that thing, condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In other words, don't flaunt your liberty in in view of others 
But enjoy the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Enjoy it. He set you free. Within the confines that we've talked about, He set you free. Not to do willy-nilly whatever you want, whatever comes into your mind, but to do those things that please God. To do those things that give Him glory. We're free to do all of that. Without limit. No limitations there. If you have a conviction, obey that conviction under the Lord unless and until that changes. Amen. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We ought to fight for that liberty. Fight to maintain that liberty. Be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. And all that that entails. Not just the, can I smoke, can I drink, questions. But the entire aspect of Christian liberty. He set us free from sin, from the, the wages of sin, the power of sin. He set us free to, to do righteously. To live holy. If you ever come to a situation where you're just not sure, am I allowed to do this? Should I do this? Ought I do this? Seek God in prayer and His Word to determine whether or not a particular activity is actually forbidden in Scripture. If it is, you got your answer. Avoid it like the plague. If it's forbidden in Scripture, folks, you don't need to go any farther. Some will go, "Eh, but what does this Scripture really mean? What does the original Greek say here? When we come to the Word of God with an open heart, an open mind, seeking to hear from God, it's very easy to understand Scripture. When it gets complicated is when it doesn't say what you want it to say. Like one guy said, scientist friend of mine, when you torture the data long enough, it will confess. You torture a scripture long enough, it'll say whatever you want it to say. If it's not specifically forbidden in scripture, then we should seek to determine how the activity reflects on our reputation as a Christian. Will this activity please God and draw me closer to Him, or will it displease God and push me farther away from Him? That's an important question to answer. Will this activity help us or hinder us in representing Jesus to unbelievers? Will this activity edify my brothers and sisters, or will it present a stumbling block to them? In closing, Galatians 5 and 13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Amen. Jesus has set us free, folks. He has set us free. Those things that bound us before bind us no longer. Amen. But that freedom is to be exercised within the confines of Scripture, of God's character, of understanding that I need to seek and esteem your welfare above my own. Following all that, I am free to do whatever I want to do. That's absolutely true. I am free to serve God. I'm free to please Him. 
I'm free to minister to you. Free to do all of that. Amen. I am not free to sin. I am not free to push the boundaries of Christian liberty to the extent that it becomes license, that it becomes a sinful lifestyle. That's not what that means at all. There are those that will tell you that's exactly what it means. But, no. We are not free to disgrace the calling wherewith God has called us. We're not free to do that. We're not free to ruin our witness for the sake of doing what I want to do when I want to do it. I am free to give glory to God, to live for and to serve Him in a manner that pleases Him. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the Word of God. We are so thankful for the liberty that You have purchased for us, that You have indeed set us free. You have made us free. Free to do whatever it is we want to do in service to You, in a manner that pleases You, in a manner that fulfills Your will, Your plan for us. Hallelujah, Jesus. I am so thankful for that kind of liberty, that kind of freedom. I pray that we would exercise it that we would exercise it freely, that we would exercise it liberally in service to You. We are not in bondage anymore, but You have set us free. Thank You, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to exercise wisdom and maturity in our exercise of Christian liberty. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand that that liberty comes with responsibility, that I must exercise my liberty within the confines of Your will, Your character, my consideration for my brother and sister. And in so doing, I give glory and honor to the Lord who has saved me and who has set me free. I pray, Lord, a blessing upon each person here tonight. Bring us back to the house of God at the day appointed. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.